our topic, the Magi worship the king. The Magi worship the king. And uh, we're Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 11. Excuse me, 1 to 12. And today we're going to be looking at, uh, well, about 7 to 12. <clears throat> and, uh, or 8 to 12. And uh, just an amazing section of scripture. I'll read the, I'll read from 1 to, to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And we'll stop there. Now, I just have a couple of things to, I just have one thing to wrap up from last week. I ran out of time. And just a brief page and a half application that I didn't get to last week. Uh, before we turn our attention to the worship of the Magi, there are a few applications from these verses that uh, merit our attention. We touched on it. We'll just bring it into focus. First, we see in Herod and the Christ child a great contrast between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And I wanted to bring this out to our attention just because of what's going on in Ukraine and, of course, what's going on in the United States where the Democratic Party has become basically lunatic. Uh, they want to be dictators. Herod achieved and retained his political power by lies, intrigue, immorality, ethical pragmatism, relativism, and the unlawful use of violence. And, of course, threats of violence. That's how tyrants rule. He is a perfect representative of the kingdom of Satan in this world. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, is wholly harmless and undefiled. Hebrews 7.26, and is truth itself. John 14.6. His kingdom flows from the cross, the vicarious sacrifice for sin, of himself to redeem his people from guilt and the power of sin, and of course the empty tomb, the victory. He has been given all authority over heaven and earth and spreads his kingdom throughout history by the sword of the Spirit, that is the word of God, that proceeds out of his mouth. Revelation 19.15 Christ's kingdom is totally founded upon truth, 
the person of Christ and his redemptive work, and men are brought into it because their hearts are revived by the Holy Spirit, and they are drawn to the truth and embrace it because they love it. They believe in it. They embrace it. They know assuredly that there is no alternative to Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior and his yoke is light because our standard for living is objectively true and just. Okay, this, this concept of the rule of law comes from the Bible. And the idea is that the word of God, and the this, this Scottish covenanters, this Presby, early Presbyterians, emphasized this over the king who believed in the divine right of kings and the king could make up anything he wanted and do anything he wanted because he was a king. No, man is not God. Man can't make the rules. God makes the rules. And the king is under the rules as well as the people. He's restricted by God's law. That's the rule of law. When you have a, a government that makes up law by, by fiat, by positivistic law, there is no true rule of law. Because the, God's law is based on uh, his nature and character, it is holy, righteous, and just, just like God, and is a delight to Christ-loving people. Any society that covenants with Christ and strictly adheres to his law word will have peace and prosperity. Peace in society and prosperity flows from self-government, whereby the regenerated and sanctified mind of man follows the truth because he wants to. No external lying and coercion is necessary. The people don't need to be tricked. They don't need propaganda. They don't need lies. They don't need coercion. They don't need uh, governmental boards to stop free speech. They don't need any of that because the truth is beautiful. The truth is embraced, and we love the truth. It is the truth. It does set us free. No external coercion is necessary. The rule of Christ flows from the spirit and the word's effect on the heart outward to all areas of life. And then second, note that Satan and his worldly minions sought the death of Jesus from almost the very moment he was born. Persecution, hatred, rejection, and danger awaits the Savior as soon as he enters the world. What a welcome. What a warm welcome from the Jews. Herod, the king of the Jews, seeks to murder him and his mother and father are forced to flee into Egypt, a foreign country, to protect him from the sword of a demonic government. So Christ was truly a rejected Messiah in a state of humiliation from his birth. And I like what the, uh, I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism, that talks about his whole life being one of uh, humiliation and uh, and uh, rejection, especially uh, the passion, especially when he was tried and crucified. This experience is only the beginning of what will characterize his whole life, especially when he enters that public ministry. The waves of humiliation began to beat over him, even when he was a suckling child. Jesus can sympathize with his people when they are hated and persecuted for his sake. And we can pray for assistance in trials, for he experienced great affliction on our behalf. If you're raised a pagan, and your parents are pagan, and your relatives are pagan, and your old friends are pagan, and you become a dedicated Christian, not one of these fake Christians, but a real dedicated Christian, they're not going to like you anymore, and they're going to laugh at you, and they're going to make fun of you. So be it. And then we come to our text, The Guiding Star, and the Worship of the Magi. In verses 9 and 10, the star appears again. And leads the Magi not only to the town where the child lives, but to, ver to the very house. It stands over where the child was living. When they heard the king, they departed. 
And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they re rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, we noted this a little bit. We're just going to cover this very briefly. From Luke's account, one gets the impression that the original star had been seen in the east, did not, uh, did not continue to be visible to them. I Excuse me, from, from the account, one gets the impression that the original star in the east did not continue to be visible to them, either during their journey or once they arrived in Jerusalem. Because all of a sudden they see it again and now they're rejoicing. I'm sorry, that's Matthew's account. I don't know why I put Luke there. In addition, this record does not agree with the view that the star was a fixed astrological phenomenon, such as a nova or a constellation of planets, for it guides them to the house, until, in the Greek, until it came and stood above where the child was. It came and stood there. Now, those who like the fixed uh, object position argue that it appeared to move, but was really simply in front of them. You know how when you're driving in your car and you see the moon in the sky, and as you're driving down the highway, you look at the moon, it, you know, it seems like it's kind of, you know, always in the same place or moving. That's their idea. Therefore, the movement was an optical illusion. That's their argument. This conjecture, however, does not explain how the star could disappear for a time and then reappear. Perhaps they could argue that it was cloudy. The text is quite clear that the star went ahead of them and was actually moving from Jerusalem toward Joseph and Mary's house. There's no way to get around that. That's what the text says. That's the clear implication of this text. It is best to view the star as a miraculous appearance intended by God to guide them to the child. The Greek literally says, until having arrived, it stood still over where the child, where was the little child. And the Magi's surprise and great joy at this reappearing also indicates a supernatural phenomenon. They rejoiced. Now we know where to go. Herod told them to go to Bethlehem. The star took them to where the child was. Now, as we noted earlier, most commentators assume that the star guided them south to Bethlehem because of Micah, the Micah 5-2 prophecy regarding the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. Uh, and, of course, Herod sends them, it says, Herod sent them to Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem, and when you find the child, come back and tell me exactly where he is. Well, it's not necessary that the star took them to Bethlehem because Herod thought the child was in Bethlehem. According to Luke, chapter 2, after the rite of purification was over, they went back to their home in Nazareth. The star could have directed them to Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary returned after her purification was completed, Luke 2.39. Now, I came to that conclusion on my own, but then I found a scholar who agrees with me, and that's Samuel J. Andrews' great book, uh, The Life of Our Lord Upon the Earth. And he says this, Where did the Magi find the infant king? It has been taken for granted that they found him at Bethlehem. And this has always been the traditional belief. But it has been questioned by some, cited by Petrintius, who present the view that Joseph and Mary went immediately after the presentation of, their the, presentation of the child to their former home in Nazareth, and that the Magi found them there. 
This seems in accordance with Luke's statement 239. When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And there is nothing intrinsically uh, in this intrinsically improbable. The question of the Magi was, where is he? And although they were sent by Herod to Bethlehem as a prophetic birthplace of the Messiah, the star may have directed them to Nazareth. And here they may have paid him their adoration, his presence being in their, in their own house, his parents being in their own house. If so, it was from Nazareth that Joseph and Mary went down to Egypt, and the Magi did not return to Jerusalem, but went to their own country another way, perhaps, by way of Damascus. End of quote. That makes the most sense, even though you know, I, have, I probably have 25 commentaries on Matthew, and uh, they all say Bethlehem. But I, I think that makes the most sense, and I think we have to take Luke 2.39 literally and seriously. The idea that they went home to Nazareth right after the purification and then moved back to Bethlehem for some reason uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In addition, they were already informed by the Jewish scholars in Herod that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem only five to six miles south of Jerusalem. Why did they need the star to guide them unless God was directing them to the actual place where Jesus presently dwelling? You have to understand, back then, Bethlehem was a tiny village. It was a very small village. The shepherds found the baby almost immediately without a star guiding them. So I think that helps my interpretation. Bethlehem was a small village on the regular route running south. The shepherds easily found the newborn king without the star. If one holds a traditional view, then the purpose of the star is really one of dramatic effect, not as a necessary guide to Joseph's house, which is what the text implies. The Magi were filled with joy when the star appeared, not because of the beauty or glory of the star, but because of the star, where the star was directing them. Oh, it's taking us to the Christ King, to the King of the Jews. And Matthew Henry says this, and it's wonderful. He writes this. The star had left them for a while, yet now returns. Those who follow God in the dark shall find it that light is sown, is reserved for them. Israel was led by a pillar of fire to the promised land. The wise men by a star to the promised seed, who is himself the bright and morning star. Revelation twenty two sixteen. Now, given the fact that the whole Old Testament scriptures, which the Jews possessed, in, Ro in Romans, Paul calls them the oracles of God, points to the Messiah as the Savior and, ru and ruler of the whole world, who will possess a kingdom that will never end and cannot be destroyed, Daniel. It is rather strange that a delegation of prominent Jewish religious and political leaders did not go with the Magi to pay homage to the king. None of them did. None of the rulers. None of the religious leaders. Now imagine you're a believer. You've been looking for the Christ to come, like Anna or Simeon your whole life, and you find out he's here. Would you not go? They do not go. They're not interested. The Christ is the axis of the scriptures. He is the very center of biblical prophecy and theology around which everything else rotates. He is the fulfillment of all the types. For none of the Jewish leaders to seek out the child reveals a spirit of unbelief, complacency, and lukewarmness. The Gentile wise men, who through contacts had only slight glimpses of special revelation, traveled a great distance to look upon and worship the newborn king. 
but the Jewish intelligentsia, the religious and political leaders, the movers and shakers of the covenant nation, were indifferent to the young king. They had better things to do. Jesus spoke of the Jews' spiritual blindness as a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 13, 14 to 15. And in fulfillment of Isaiah is fulfilled, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will, not, you will hear it and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, that I should heal them. And then we come to the main point of the sermon. The Magi present their gifts. They have a treasure box. They open it up when they're in the house, and they present their gifts. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they had a treasure box, a treasure chest. They presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi, having been directed to the house where the holy child lived, introduced themselves and entered the, to pay homage to the king. Our Lord is around two years of age, so Mary is mentioned. For the child is in her care. And they didn't have milk at the store. They had they suckled child for a lot longer than we do today. They didn't have formula. For the sake of brevity, Joseph is not mentioned in the Magi narrative at all. The phrase the child and his mother will, will reoccur in 213, 14, 20, and 21. And the child is always mentioned first. In these verses, it is clear that Joseph is present and is the leader of the family. While the Magi pay homage to Christ, they do not worship Mary, which would be idolatry. And when they saw Herod, did they bow before Herod and pay him homage? No, they did not. Herod had a reputation as a wicked, evil man. They did not pay him homage. And we do not, we have to uh, seek to live in peace with evil leaders and try to avoid being persecuted. Yes, we should do that. We don't compromise with them, but we don't pay them homage. We don't bow the knee to Biden or Putin or Hitler or all these kind of people. They're evil. They're, they're, they're uh, the, the excrement on the feet of Satan. Mary, which, uh, Joseph and Mary are now living in a house, very likely in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Scholars and translators are virtually agreed, universally agreed, that the translation should be the wise men having entered the house, oikos, oikos. The word house does not mean inn, and it does not mean stable. It means a house, a permanent dwelling for a family, a dwelling for a family, a house. A.T. Robertson, in his wonderful stuff, he's a great Greek scholar. He's totally attached to Christmas, and he tries to tries to argue that they were that the word can refer to an inn. And modern Greek scholars say he's just obviously wrong, saying that for the sake of preserving his Christmas tradition. When the Magi, <coughs> oh, the Magi visit around uh, two years later when the child is living in a house, probably in Nazareth. Almost everything associated with Roman Catholic Holy Day called Christmas is a lie based on human tradition. 
Every, almost everything associated with Christmas is a lie. The day's a lie. The idea that the shepherds were, when I was a little kid, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. My parents were very much into Christmas. And uh, I was uh, I went to catechism and we went to Roman Catholic Church. And uh, when I was very young, I got a set. I got a, uh, you know, those, those uh, nativity scenes you can buy. I got a really nice set. I forget who bought it for me. But they were all little statues and they were made out of white, some kind of white material probably. And it was heavy and thick. And it had the... Uh, the shepherds over here, and they had their staves. And right next to the shepherds, you have your three magi with their box, <laughs> their treasure box, dressed in robes. That's all a lie. This is two years after Christ was born. The shepherds were there the night he was born. The magi travel a great distance and are there two years later. Just keep that in mind. When the magi see the toddler, they cast themselves to the ground and they worship Jesus. The text literally says, and having fallen... They prostrated themselves before him. And this is the beginning of a number of Old Testament prophecies regarding Gentile authorities acknowledging the lordship of the Jewish Messiah. And as we get to later on, that's the significance of this. Jews don't care. The Gentiles travel a great distance to bow the knee to Christ. In Psalm 72, 10 to 11 and 15, we read, The kings of Tarshish! And of the isles, the isles were considered really far away, will bring presents. The kings of Seba and Sheba, of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Daily he shall be praised. And here's another one. Isaiah 63, 5 and 6 reads, The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. The newborn king is to be lord over lords, king over kings, king over all kings, king over Caesar. Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 16. Homage and worship, even by the Gentile nations, belongs to Jesus. It belongs to him. National Israel, however, does not receive her honor or worship him. They will reject him, persecute him, and then put him to death. Now we know in God's plan, a time will come when the Jews will turn to Christ. Now there are, there are quite a few Jewish Christians now. Uh, I've, I've known, I've had friends that were, you know, they call themselves Messianic Jews. Um, and there, a time will come when Israel will turn to Christ, and Israel will be, if it's not destroyed by Iran before then, <laughs> blown up by Iran, it will be a Christian nation. That time is coming. But it's not yet, obviously. Uh, we're in a state of decline world, pretty much worldwide as far as Christianity goes, although it's still spreading. It's still leavening the earth. The lesson here for all mankind is that we need hearts that look for Jesus and seek him until we find him. Once we find him, then we must fully receive him as Lord and Savior and worship him. We must dedicate our whole lives to Christ and bow the knee to him as disciples every single day. We must regard everything we have as a gift of God, and thus we must open our storehouses unto him by supporting his kingdom with our tithes. The wise men opened their treasure boxes when they beheld the king. Let us keep our love and our holy service for our Lord's eyes and never wish to expose them to the world's gaze. Let us not be like the leaders and people in Jerusalem who were too busy 
with worldly cares to seek out the Christ child. I mean, those poor people who, and you know, some maybe became Christians later on, but those poor people who died and went to hell, they had the opportunity to worship Christ in person. And they didn't do it because of stupid worldly nonsense. As the queen of the south, so the wise men of the east, of that generation will condemn them. For they came from a far country to worship Christ, while the Jews would not travel to a near town to bid him welcome. Note, we must continue our focus and attendance upon Christ, though we may be alone in it. Whatever others do, we must serve the Lord. And if they will not go to heaven with us, we must not go to hell with them. I'm very distressed. I really worry about young people who get distressed when people uh, bully them and mock them for being Christians and make fun of them. Why should you get upset at that? That's an honor. It's an honor to be hated on account of Christ. It's a privilege. Don't compromise one iota. Don't be, who cares what the world thinks? Look at all the great, all these great poets and great writers and pagans and rock stars and all these people. Jim Morrison, Hendrix, Janis Joplin. All these great artists, Miles Davis, all these people. They didn't serve Christ, did they? They had their temporary glory. They had their five minutes in the sun. And now they're burning in hell. Who cares what pagans think about you? What we have to care about is what Christ thinks about us, what God thinks. These men had faith in the limited revelation they had in that the star brought them to an ordinary modest house with parents who were neither rich, connected, or powerful. Just a regular house. Remember, they were so, uh, they lacked funds, they had to offer two turtle doves. They obviously didn't have a lot of money. The holy child was living in the humblest circumstances. They acted by faith and not by sight. They paid him homage as though he was in an amazing palace with great riches and exceedingly powerful armies. Did these magi have enough special revelation to know that this little suckling child was the only begotten son of the God, of the Father who created the universe? They may not have known, but they acted on the revelation they did have. And they acted as though he was the creator of the universe. Only those who behold Christ with the eye of faith can really appreciate who he is and what he has accomplished. So let these magi, even with their very limited, we have the whole Bible, they had a very limited knowledge gained probably from the Jews around them and perhaps derived from Daniel in the old days that had been passed down through the generations. And they acted upon what they had. And we have way much more. And then let's look at the three gifts. In the Eastern nations, it was customary for powerful princes to pay homage to new kings and present expensive gifts to the king. In this tradition, the Magi present gifts to the child. The offering of gold and precious spices was a common gift for kings and reveals that these Magi were themselves wealthy and powerful in their own land. As we'll see, these, all three of these items are just not normal items you see with everyday people. These are exceedingly expensive items. You know, it'd be like giving somebody a, a Gucci purse that's worth $25,000 or something, or a pair of Gucci shoes or something. It's just something middle-class people, uh, you don't buy that kind of thing. You, you can't afford that kind of thing. Now, frankincense was used for perfume, 
Song of Solomon 3.6, and incense. The word frankincense, Greek, libanos, Hebrew, libona, means incense or can refer to the incense tree. It was called the incense tree. The word comes from the word uh, uh, for whiteness, which is the color of its smoke. The word occurs uh, 14 times in the Old Testament, most of which deal with how it is to be used, properly used in a grain or meal offerings. Leviticus 2, 1 to 16, it was mixed with grain, it was mixed with a meal and then burnt and gave a soothing, beautiful aroma. It was never used in atoning sacrifices. In the New Testament, it is only found in our text in Revelation 18.13, where the luxury merchandise of the merchants is listed. The great city is destroyed, and they look back, and they see the smoke arising, and they're lamenting all the super expensive items that have been destroyed. And that's one of them. Frankincense was produced in Arabia, near Seba, or Sheba, and was exported to the wealthy and priests throughout the ancient world. It was delivered, uh, derived from the resin of a desert tree. I watched uh, I, 60 Minutes or some documentary, maybe it was National Geographic. I saw a whole thing on, on this tree. It's a short desert tree, and they make little slits in it, and they collect the sap as it, it dries and crystallizes. They collect that. They still do it today. It's super expensive. Apparently, it's like super great stuff. I'd love to have some. Um, produced in Arabia near Seba Sheba, exported throughout to the ancient world to rich people, derived from the resin. Cuts would be made in the tree, and the hardened resin produced would be collected in the summer after the sap had crystallized. Due to the scarcity of these trees, the trees called Baswellia, the small amount of resin produced, these are not giant trees, the labor-intensive procedure, it's very labor-intensive, and the long distance of shipping involved, uh, involved, the resin crystals were very, very expensive. And, you know, this thing I watched, it, Somewhere in Arabia, I forgot where it was, but there's short trees, and you see these guys wrapped all up because of the sun. It's super hot, and they're going around, and they're taking a knife, and they're putting little slight, little slices in the tree, and then they go back and collect the stuff. When the crystals were burned, they produced a sweet, highly pleasant aroma. And frankincense is still harvested in the traditional manner in Arabia today. And uh, it's ex exceedingly expensive. Apparently, it's the best incense you can buy. Now, that gold would be offered to the Christ King makes sense, and that gold was the highest valued metal and currency in the ancient world. Whether gold nuggets or coins, we do not know, though either would be used as, uh, could be used as a currency anywhere in the world. This gift was highly providential in that Joseph would have to flee very soon to temporary, uh, he would have to temporarily abandon his business when the Holy Family fled to Egypt. We know they were relatively poor due to the offering of the pair of turtle doves. The gold would provide for them during Herod's persecution of the child. Gold was used for decorative purses in the tabernacle and temple, Exodus 25 to 31, 35 to 40, 1 Kings 5 to 7, and 2 Chronicles 2 to 5. It was also used for decorating humans. Bracelets, Genesis 24-22, necklaces, Numbers 31-50, earrings, uh, Exodus 32-2 and 3, and we're talking about primarily women the most beautiful creatures in creation, the glory of the man, the husband. And Matthew Henry's great on that. Women were the final act of God's creation, was women, taken from the man. 
the pinnacle of creation as far as beauty goes. It was also preferred for the covering of idols. It symbolized beauty, brilliance, value, glory. These magi were glorifying the Messianic king even in a state of humiliation because they looked at the little child with the eye of faith and saw the king over all kings who will subdue all enemies under his feet. Now, they might not have known of his divinity, but they did know that he was to be king over kings. He would be the king over the whole earth. Now, myrrh was also a fragrant gum collected from small trees in Arabia, Somaliland, and Ethiopia. In our English Bibles, the word myrrh is used to translate two different Hebrew words. One, latte, or lot, a sticky aromatic gum, twice is used twice in Genesis. This is a local plant, 37.25.43.11. This is the gum made from the sap of the cystus, or ladanum tree. In the rest of the Old Testament occurrences, at least 12 in all, eight of which are found in the Song of Solomon, the Hebrew word is mor. And this is a reference to the import from Africa or Southern Arabia. Myrrh was used as a luxurious cosmetic, cosmetic fragrance. Uh, they used it on Esther to prepare her. Esther 2.12, Psalm 45.8, Proverbs 7.17, where the loose woman is putting her, uh, myrrh on her bed to prepare it. Song of Solomon 1.13, and 15, 5.1 and 5 and 13. It would be placed on the body, it would be placed on clothes, and even bedspreads for a fragrant, romantic evening. It was also a chief ingredient for the ointment used by the Jews to wrap dead bodies after they had been thoroughly washed. The Jews' uh, embalming was very different than the Egyptians. They did not drain the blood, they did not take out the brain and the organs like the Egyptians did and put them in a pot, or like modern uh, embalming where they drain all the blood and replace it with formaldehyde or whatever it is. Uh... They kept the blood. The blood was sacred, so they had to bury the person the day they died. They'd be thoroughly washed, and then they would get these very expensive ointments and cloth, and they would wrap the body with layers and layers and layers of this, so the body would be, uh, at least the outside of the body would be preserved, and it would not smell. Very expensive and could only be afforded by the wealthy and powerful. It was used in the wrapping of Jesus' dead body because of the generosity of Nicodemus, John nineteen thirty nine to 40 Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, procured the body from Pilate and donated the hand-carved tomb. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, we are told in prophecy. And Nicodemus provided 100 pounds of embalming ointment. There's some serious money. Thousands and thousands of dollars. Since the early days of the post-apostolic church, it has been common to view these gifts as reflective of what the child is and what he will do to save and then rule over the entire earth. For example, Matthew 28, 18 and following. And we could add probably Romans 1, 3. He's the king over kings. And here's, here's their interpretation. They chose frankincense, which was used in offerings to Yahweh, because he was God of very God. Frankincense, and also holy incense in general, immediately suggests God. Therefore, according to this view, they recognize the child's divinity. Okay, this is a very common view throughout the history of the church. Myrrh, we are told, was given because he came to die a sacrificial death. Uh, gold was given because he is the king over kings. Although this interpretation is very old and very common, and everything it says about Jesus is certainly true, 
It's certainly true, these things, what they say about Jesus. It is unlikely that the Magi who did not possess special revelation had such a mature, developed theology at that early date. It is a legitimate application of what such items can mean in the broader context of Scripture. So you can make applications. But theologically, the main point of the passage is that these Gentiles from a faraway land sought out, appreciated, and believed in the Christ King and gave him the proper homage he deserved, while the Jews in Jerusalem, who possessed special revelation, they were the scribes, the religious scholars of the day, and the leaders, they were nearby, ignored him. In fact, Herod the king, the king over Judah, wanted to kill him. The striking account of the Magi coming from the distant east calls attention to the royal infant. In their paying homage to the Holy Child, they anticipate the coming widespread faith and worship of Christ among the Gentile nations. The realization of the Old Testament types and prophecies means that the long-awaited salvation of the Gentiles has come. And that's the message of this. Now, the Western Church highly regarded this special visit and even before they began to celebrate Christmas, uh, sometime in the probably early 4th century, they had already began the tradition of celebrating Epiphany on January 6th, which is regarded as the day Christ was first manifested to the Gentiles. Now, while adding human traditions to Scripture is wrong and sinful, and the dates used are most, almost certainly incorrect, we still celebrate this glorious event every Lord's Day. We celebrate the birth Epiphany, baptism, life, death, resurrection of Christ every week. God has not left us Gentiles in darkness. Now, the incarnation and the work of the Messianic King demands decision. There is no neutrality. Will we place our faith in Jesus and serve him as Lord with love, devotion, and obedience? Or will we ignore him like the wicked Jews of that generation? You can't be neutral on this. You can't sit on the fence on this. Jesus is the great divider of men in that it is impossible to be neutral regarding who he is and what he has done. If you don't worship him, if you don't adore him, if you don't believe in him, if you don't serve him, then obviously you don't believe. Obviously you're a pagan. Obviously you live for self and not for him. Let us therefore follow the example of the Magi by believing in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures and then serving and worshiping him with the whole heart. Very important application. And then they return to a different way. Let's let, let us wrap up the pericope of the Magi. Verse 12. Then being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. Now this verse reveals God's care and protection of Jesus. Matthew makes it explicit that Yahweh warned the Magi not to return to Herod. This occurred while they were dreaming. Whether an angel appeared to them in a dream, or they heard a voice, or however it was revealed, we do not know. But we do know that it came directly from God. The, the text makes that crystal clear. We do know that God would not allow the Magi who honored his son to be unwitting participants in Herod's murderous plan. We see that from beginning to end, the mission and actions of the Magi 
are supernaturally directed. God is involved in all of this. God is not only sovereignly seeking, uh, setting in place his plan of redemption, but he is also carefully watching over and protecting the divine human mediator to make sure his mission can be completed. In this God-created and God-controlled universe, there's no such thing as chance. You know, these people, these radical Arminians and these people who have this open view of Arminianism leads to this God, view that God can make mistakes and God doesn't know the future. So, you know, in that view, God could have tripped and banged his head on a stone and not gone to the cross. No, all that's nonsense. God controls everything. He's total control. The divine providence is especially evident in redemptive history. With a Magi's mission complete, they set off on their long journey using a different route to avoid the wrath and possible interrogation by Herod. When supremely evil men are in power who have overwhelming force, we should do our best to avoid them. Our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. We are not to seek persecution. We are to flee persecution whenever possible. So that's the end of the story of the Magi. And what a, what a wonderful story. What an amazing story. Now, why didn't Luke tell us about it? Well, Luke's covering some different material. Sometimes they, their material overlaps, but sometimes it does not. Luke gives us critical material that Matthew leaves out. And Matthew gives us critical material that Luke leaves out. And, of course, John is very different from all three. But they all are designed by God to be taken together. So I hope you learn the lesson of this wonderful worship of Christ by the Magi. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing text. What an amazing section of Scripture. Lord, help us to be like the Magi, where we would go to the very ends of the earth to bow the knee to Christ and serve him as his faithful disciples. Bend our hearts to love your Lord, to your Son. Bend our hearts to serve him. Bend our hearts to follow him faithfully and be covenant keepers. Bend our hearts. Cause us to believe faithfully, perpetually, and persevere in the faith and sanctification. Cause us to be faithful disciples dedicated to his cause. In Jesus' name, amen.